Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics. Welcome to our first episode of 2023. I'm Major Alan Eberns, and I'm Defense Counsel in the Air Force's Trial Defense Division. Our normal host, Daryl Johnson, is on the road this week, but he'll be back soon. Before we get into this week's episode, I'll note like we always do that this podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. The podcast is also unofficial. The ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the United States government, Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. This week, we're going to discuss spotting objectionable command policies and sentencing argument. Then, for our advocacy segment, Major Matt Leal is going to talk about the chapter method used to build effective cross-examinations. As we turn to a new year, we also reflect on no new appellate decisions since our last episode from the Court of Appeals from the Armed Forces, the Supreme Court of the United States, or the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals. The biggest development adjacent to military justice came in a memorandum from the Secretary of Defense on the 10th of January, 2023, following through on a provision of the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023. The DOD's requirement that service members be vaccinated to protect against COVID-19 is gone. For service members that sought religious, administrative, or medical accommodations to not have to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, any discharges based solely on the failure to be vaccinated, those are gone. All adverse actions for those same folks, those adverse actions, they're gone too. And while that change to the vaccination landscape will have a big impact on a lot of service members and a whole lot of actions, we also wanted to dig into maybe something more in line with court martial practice, uh, drawing on some kind of recent case. So that got us looking a little bit to see what sort of recent decisions had come out from the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals, which has had a number of unpublished decisions. And one that came from December was United States versus Brown, an unpublished decision from December 9th, 2022. And why are we talking about this random seeming appellate decision? Well, one, yeah, it was within that range of more recent cases that we were looking for. But also when I started reading it, I'll flag that I was one of the trial defense counsel. While there are a bunch of different issues that were raised on appeal, we're going to talk about one of them having to do with the trial counsel's sentencing argument. So here's what you need to know in terms of background on the case. This was a hotly contested sexual assault case involving cadets at the Air Force Academy. In terms of it being hotly contested, instead of the five days for which it was docketed, it took 10. The appellant testified in his own defense, denying the charged conduct, and he got hammered by the prosecution for lying. He admitted in his in-court testimony that it was different from his motions hearing testimony. He admitted to lying to OSI investigators. The appellant, though, was acquitted of the charged conduct, uh, but found guilty of the lesser included offense of assault consummated by a battery. Specifically, the appellant claimed that uh, the bruises on the named victim's torso, that those were consensual hickeys. The named victim claimed that she was bitten without her consent. Ultimately, again, he was found guilty of that assault consummated by the battery in the form of the biting. In sentencing, the judge gave a mendacity instruction and the case ended with an adjudged sentence of a dismissal. So here's where the sentencing argument comes up. In arguing for a dismissal, which again was the only sentence that was adjudged in this case, the prosecutor heavily emphasized the appellant's alleged lying and invoked the values of the Air Force Academy. Specifically, the prosecutor said, members, 
appellant got on that stand and lied to you under oath to your faces. Based on your findings, he lied under oath when he said that the bite mark was a consensual wanted hickey. He lied to his friends. He lied to federal agents. And that's how you know that, this, that his potential for rehabilitation is low. Prosecutor went on, Part of what makes Yusafa so reputable is that America's best and brightest come here. Looming large on the terrazzo are the words, we will not lie. And it was at that point, as she said, we will not lie, that the defense counsel objected. Uh, the objection was overruled at that time. So the prosecutor went on, starting with reciting uh, the honor code for the Air Force Academy. She said, we will not lie, steal, or cheat, nor tolerate among us anyone who does. Appellant violated that code. He lied about his application of force. He stole the named victim's sense of security. And he cheated her out of what was supposed to be a positive college experience. This is an institution in which female cadets must feel safe. An institution where we produce the best of the Air Force. This is not an institution where cadets harm one another. This is not an institution where female cadets have to get medical treatment. And at this point, the defense counsel objected again, and trial counsel moved on. Now, I should say the defense counsel, I'll note that I was not the defense counsel for purposes of argument, so it's just the defense objected. Um, unfortunately for the appellant, this issue about whether the argument by trial counsel invoking the honor code of the Air Force Academy, uh, that argument on appeal went nowhere, and that's because the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals found no prejudice. But it did get me thinking about how often this issue might come up and how best to preserve these issues going forward. Part of what got me thinking about this is because this was not my first case at the Air Force Academy where the prosecution made this sort of argument in sentencing. And while the first instance, it made a little bit more sense, maybe because the allegations involved false official statements, I could also have a broader concern that we could see similar sorts of arguments being made at, say, training bases where there are training-oriented standards to which students are held. So first, let's talk, though, about what the law has to say about this sort of argument and where the argument in United States versus Brown happens to fall. The first thing to note is that pre-United States versus Greenwood 65 MJ 724, which is a 2007 per curiam decision from the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals, it is permissible for the prosecution to reference the Air Force's core values and sentencing argument because, quote, they are meant to be inspirational and aspirational, referring, of course, to the core values there, rather than being impermissibly injected into a case. In fact, the trial judge in United States versus Brown, the case we're talking about today, thought that the reference to the Air Force Academy's honor code was analogous to bringing up the core values. But the law says that a line gets crossed when prosecutors start invoking things that could be seen as command policy. So, for example, in United States versus Crop, 39 MJ 107, the Court of Military Appeals, as in the predecessor to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, concluded that calling the appellant in that case a blight upon the Navy and calling on the members to consider the Navy's zero-tolerance policy for drugs, basically saying that the appellant in that case needed to be kicked out because he used drugs, that argument crossed the line. And there's one other way to sort of view this or think about this from a legal lens, uh, although it's not in a way that came up in the Brown case, uh, and that's that the prosecution was arguing that 
the appellant in Brown should be punished based on his job in the Air Force. Again, that wasn't addressed in the Bound decision, but the law in that area that we should note here is that the prosecution can only argue an accused job if it is somehow tied to the offense. So, if someone abuses their position at, say, the pharmacy to steal and then abuse drugs, it's fair to argue how the preaches of trust associated with that person's duties at the pharmacy are aggravating and warrant greater punishment. But it's improper if that same argument were made and the crime at issue were, say, domestic violence. A somewhat recent unpublished decision that illustrates this distinction is United States v. Condon 2017 CCA Lexus 187, which had to do with improper argument concerning an OSI agent's duty status as being aggravating. Or the Air Force Court didn't ultimately decide whether the argument in United States v. Brown was improper, it did give a little bit of, of uh, language that uh, trial defense counsel can hang their hats on going forward, recognizing that the cadet honor code Again, that code being we will not lie, steal, or cheat, nor tolerate among us anyone who does, has a, a little bit notable distinction from the core values. And to quote the, the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals in the United States versus Brown, this code of conduct or the cadet honor code, it is, quote, more specific and prohibitive, end quote, than the core values, end quote, implies specific consequences for failure to meet the prescribed standard of behavior, end quote. So in other words, right, the Air Force Academy's cadet honor code, it says we're not going to keep these folks around if they are liars. And that seemed to be the flavor of the argument in uh, United States versus Brown. But again, the court didn't get there because they decided the issue on prejudice. Just to give you my take as the guy who was basically elbowing my co-counsel, like, hey, if you weren't planning to stand up already, please do so now and object. Uh, my view is that the argument in Brown was improper. It seems awfully close to the Croft case. Instead of arguing that the Navy doesn't tolerate continued service of drug users, the prosecution in United States versus Brown argued to a panel filled with Air Force Academy personnel that the Air Force Academy, where they work, where all the almost all the witnesses were from, where the appellant was from, where the named victim was from, that that place is no place for liars. Now, separately, and perhaps this rates, relates to prejudice on this particular issue, I do also have a hard time with the argument that lying supports a dismissal because a dismissal is a purely punitive sentence. And lying in this instance, in the Brown case, it wasn't the charge conduct and the lying was instead seemingly based on the mendacity instruction given by the judge meant to go to rehabilitative potential. That said, what are the takeaways from this case for trial practitioners? First, as you've likely heard before, object. If you don't object, the issue's forfeited and it's much harder on appeal. But that's sort of an obvious point, uh, you know, avoiding forfeiture of the issue. I would encourage you to think of in advance about what you'd say when you object. It's a little bit like a UCI light type issue where you're trying to get into the notion of the command improperly infecting a court martial, but it's without the complexity really of arguing unlawful command influence under Article 37 of the UCMJ. So in, in stating the basis for the objection, just thinking about what you might say, you could say simply objection, improper argument. That would preserve the issue, but it risks maybe not being clear enough to put the judge on notice. 
uh, of the exact objection that you're making and its basis. It would, however, avoid foot-stomping the allegedly improper argument for the, the members. Another thing that you could do is to say, objection, improper argument for command policy. That might succinctly capture the issue for the judge without turning your objection into basically a word salad that only serves to highlight the prosecution's allegedly improper argument. These aren't the only things that you might say, but they are things that you could say, and it's worth thinking about. You might also want to think about asking for an Article 39A session outside the presence of the members, assuming that members are deciding the sentencing your case. If you need to establish some kind of factual predicate to make sense of the command policy that it's at issue, that might be a good circumstance for asking for an Article 39A session. Uh, so, for example, if there's a command policy that's very local, that's sort of culturally known, but something that a, a military judge who's not otherwise stationed at that base or familiar with that base too closely, if they don't understand it, calling for or asking for an Article 39A session might help you establish a clear factual predicate or uh, the objection that you're making. So that would probably be the best case scenario for when you would really want to lean more heavily in favor of the Article 39A session. Of course, you could also just ask for an Article 39A session to more broadly flesh out your arguments as well, but that might not have the same payoff as when you're trying to build in a factual predicate for supporting your objection. Now, the other major takeaway from the Brown case and this line of cases about improper argument has to do with prejudice. If you've read a lot of decisions on improper argument, you've seen appellate courts practically talk until they are blue in the face, telling prosecutors to knock this stuff off. In the crop case, they said, prosecutors tread lightly in this area. And tread lightly is the court's words. Tread lightly when you're talking about these sorts of things and, and invoking these cultural norms and, and arguably these command policies. Now, if you've read these cases, though, you've almost seen all of them resolve in favor of the prosecution on appeal, and that's due to a lack of prejudice. The dispositive question on appeal is in the legal test is whether an appellant was sentenced based on the evidence alone. If the sentence was based on something outside of just the evidence itself, if this improper argument by the prosecution creeped in, only then does it cross the threshold into being prejudicial and only then does the defense win on appeal. Now, the tough part is really articulating that prejudice on the record. The judge admittedly might mitigate the improper argument with a curative instruction or by cutting off the argument. That's what you want them to do. You want to get the best sentence possible and not have improper argument infect the sentencing deliberations of the, the fact finder. Now, the other thing that makes it complicated is you don't know what the sentence is going to be when you're making your objection. So prejudice won't really be clear until after the sentence is adjudged. It seems like the key is to argue this issue most likely in the post-trial submission of matters. You've got your personal observations from the courtroom that you might be able to incorporate. You might also be able to talk to panel members, or you might be able to talk to your experts or members of the public to observe the case to try and capture some of those things that maybe aren't readily clear from the audio recording of the case or the words that are going to be transcribed for the case. 
So maybe one of those individuals is able to really see, I don't know, like a big mood shift in the room or see a big change in body language. And maybe that person is willing to submit a letter or a memorandum or a declaration that you can incorporate as an attachment to a post-trial submission of matters and therefore make it part of the record. If you think the sentence is disproportionately harsh and you're making that sort of argument in your post-trial submission of matters, understanding that the convening authority can't do anything about it, but you're really trying to set the table for what might come on appeal, well, you could tie that argument potentially if the facts are there uh, to the improper argument. So in other words, you're saying, look, this sentence was way too harsh and I understand convening authority, you may or may not be able to do anything about it, but... The appellate court can, and based on what I, as counsel, observed in the court martial, you should really take into consideration how it was impacted by this improper argument. So you can link the two together and say, look, I, as counsel, think that the improper argument, in fact, resulted in what on its face would be an improper or at least an overly severe sentence. That's maybe that improper argument is maybe the key moment that changed the sentencing landscape in the case. And that's maybe your gateway for arguing that, look, the sentence itself was not based on the evidence. It was based off evidence and improper argument invoking command policies that otherwise have no business within the sentencing deliberations of a court martial. Uh, Look, this isn't an easy issue, but the Brown case does shed some light on the roadmap for getting wins in this area and for snuffing out improper argument about command policies, whether those policies happen to be specific to the Air Force Academy, other training bases, or even at a higher level within the Department of Defense. So think about that and how you might want to address that in those cases, and I wish you best of luck. I'd like to send out a big thank you to Major Matt Leal, who recently attended the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers course on defending sex crimes in Las Vegas. At that course, Mr. Larry Posner gave a presentation on effective cross-examination using the chapter method. And Major Leal was kind enough to record a piece for this podcast describing that method and passing on what he learned to you. So thank you very much, Major Leal. This is Major Matt Leal, and today I'm going to talk about the chapter method. Recently, I went to Las Vegas and attended an NACDL training. And as a part of that training, Mr. Larry Posner taught a four-hour block. For those of you who don't know who Mr. Posner is, he is the guy who invented the chapter method. And so I'm going to talk about three takeaways from his four-hour block. And I'm also going to talk about three small nuggets from that that long training. The first is that this sort of old school way of thinking of cross-examination should be left in the past. And by that I mean cross-examination is not just a destructive tool. It's not just an opportunity for the defense counsel to get in, get out, ask just a couple pointed questions that knocks the government's case off its axis. And then the defense counsel waits for its case, and then calls a bunch of witnesses to put on a bunch of evidence. The way Mr. Posner preaches it is that ideally the defense case would be to win its case through cross-examination, call zero witnesses, and never expose itself to cross-examination. And the idea being that witnesses are lay people, and so by reducing The number of witnesses the defense is calling is reducing its risk. It's eliminating the prosecution's ability to put on rebuttal. It's forcing 
the members to listen to the defense counsel through the cross-examination instead of through lay, lay people, through witnesses who might say really odd things in the defense's case. And it eliminates the prosecution's ability to score any points for any of those facts where when you're weighing a lay witness, pros and cons, should we put them on? There are always cons. It eliminates the prosecution ability to score any points through those witnesses. It also greatly reduces the defense's evidentiary burden. If you think about it in terms of, I had to call eight witnesses to get across 15 points. Now I only have to call one or two witnesses to get across three or four points. And so the burden that you're carrying, the logistical burden, the the prep work, all of that coordination, interviews, phone calls, that burden that you're carrying is greatly reduced as well. So you can focus more on scoring points through cross-examination. The second second point from Mr. Posner is that the chapter method is a tool for organization, and that's it. It's not some sort of silver bullet that that is going to automatically win the case for you. It is a way to take the psychology of breaking information into chunks and organizing it very logically. And to give you a practical example, Mr. Posner talks about this organization as chapter bundles being the big buckets. So if you think about an Article 120 case and you think about the big chapter bundle, the big bucket being the counterintuitive behaviors of the complaining witness, then the chapter would be each of those counterintuitive behaviors. So a chapter might be that the complaining witness continued to sleep in the same bed as your client for 18 months after making the allegation. As a practical matter, your chapter should only be one page in Microsoft Word with the standard single space bulleted list. If it goes over into a second page, you really need to evaluate, do I have more than one chapter crammed into this single organizational unit? Because the idea is to break these concepts into chunks and that way you can move them around and organize them logically and that way they can be digested very easily. The third point Mr. Posner made is that crosses are the most important part of the defense's case. And so from his point of view, you should start with the crosses. You should start by building the crosses. And the idea behind that is it's because the ideal case is won through cross-examination. And after all, the testimony of the witnesses is the evidence in the case. That's the substantive core of the case. So starting with that substantive core and working outward is how he preaches it. So you would start with cross-examination, then you would move to opening. And the reason why he preaches moving to opening is because you, you want to taint the government's witnesses with the details that you're going to elicit through cross-examination in a way that causes a first impression on the panel that is to the benefit of your client. So when the prosecution calls the complaining witness's best friend, the panel goes, oh, that's the person that's super biased. 
That's the person that I, I should be very suspicious of. That's the person that might be making up facts for the complaining witness. So then the defense would prep the directs, the voir dire, the closing, work outward from the cross-examination. And the idea being that you're really developing the substantive portion of your case, and then you're weaving that outwardly through the rest of the parts of the trial. So the three sort of nuggets or, or bonus ideas that we pulled from Mr. Pauser's training is the first is that defense counsel should be fact-focused, not combat-focused. Mr. Posner preached that defense counsel should not use aggressive as their default setting for their tone and behavior. Their cross-examination should be about eliciting facts that win the case, not about fighting with the witness. The second is that defense counsel should be educators, not artists. Defense counsel should stop thinking about litigation as a dance, thinking and start thinking about it as a, as a classroom setting where we need to teach the panel the facts they should know to see the case our way. And defense counsel should stop thinking that it's a dan- it could be a dance to begin with, that somehow it's an art form that only certain people are born with only certain people are born to do well. And if you if you weren't born with that gene, you're never going to be successful because that's just not true. Mr. Posner preached that this is a skills-based application and that you're going to get better by doing it, by practicing and by prepping very thoroughly. The third nugget from Mr. Posner is that you should begin every single chapter with a signpost. And you should actually be writing those signposts, those headings of your chapter, into the chapters that you were building. And the idea is that as the panel is listening to your cross-examination, they should be able to write the headings down for themselves so that when they go back into the deliberation room, it's very thoroughly organized. Their notes are very thoroughly organized And they can pull out the facts they need to advocate for the position they believe in, which hopefully is is the position that you're pushing as a defense counsel. And the psychology behind that, and the psychology behind the entire chapter method, is that people think in chunks. They think in bite-sized pieces, not in long, linear, narrative ways. Just bite-sized pieces of information that are logically organized so that they can pull out the facts that they need. And that's it. That's all the chapter method is, is a tool for organization. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Just like you always do. Till the-
the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And will you please say hello to the friends that I know Happy to know that you saw me 